Well, welcome back to our series in Genesis 1 to 4. That's what we've been looking at as a church together over this term. And we're now halfway through the first chapters of everything. And uh, very quickly, we're coming to that part in Genesis, if we're honest, that we've been sort of waiting for with grim anticipation and with bated breath. And it's, uh, it is a bit of a grim passage this morning because it sits in desperately stark contrast to what we've had up until this moment in Genesis. And up until now, everything has been good, very good, perfectly good. We've seen a wonderful, powerful God create a wonderful, magnificent creation through the power of his voice. We've seen this same God perfectly and intimately through deep relationship for man and, and, and engineer woman, the, a very good man and woman, and, and man and woman that fits perfectly in God's creation. They're, they're, they're given the right to rule and to reign and to look after the world under this creator, to, to work for the good of the earth's fruition for its maturity. A man and woman were then given a right, a perfect starting place in this beautiful Garden of Eden. Man and woman who were given God's own image. God's image that they were to bear fully together as they have families and were to fill the earth full of children and people who were always going to point each other to God and say, look, he's amazing. We, we love you, God, and you've given us the best of everything. We'll never stop praising you. And that's where we've come through over these past five weeks. Five weeks of paradise. Paradise begun, paradise gained, paradise perfected. All under a good, generous, almighty God, with man and woman in this beautiful marriage with each other, with him, with unfettered access to him, with no shame before him or with each other. The very last verses of last week, chapter 2, and the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. There was nothing bad. There was nothing to hide. There was nothing to be ashamed of. It was paradise. What we wouldn't give to live in that kind of state. It's almost unimaginable living in that kind of state. And it's unimaginable living in that kind of state. The, the, the idea of paradise is so laughingly elusive in our world because of what we read here in our verses this morning that Miri read for us. As we see Adam and Eve disobeying God's law, eating from the fruit of the tree they were commanded not to eat, and as such release sin and death and sadness into the world with unimaginable consequences. Consequences that are so grotesque and far-reaching and deep-seated in our world today that we cannot imagine what true paradise looks like. Paradise has been lost. And for these verses this morning, I think they are perhaps the most important and illuminating verses in the whole of the Bible. Uh, many people roll their eyes at Genesis 3, 1 to 7. It's seen as the embarrassing doctrine of Christianity, what with talking snakes and apples and perfectly formed naked humans with appropriately long hair to cover the, necess the, the necessities. That's the sort of image that we have of the paintings over the years. And it might be that some of you are here this morning and you might think that. It's sort of met with a bit of an eye roll. Well, I'm going to ask you to, to, to bear with me Please bear with me. And if bearing with me you're still baffled, then please come and speak to me afterwards. I'd love to chat to you through this if you wanted me to. But I want to show you this morning that far from this being a totally mad part of the Bible that makes no sense, it is, in fact, I would argue, the one part of the Bible that to any human is the most sane and makes the most sense. For there is no other part of the Bible, in fact, there is no other moment in historical or philosophical literature, I would argue, in the world that makes so much sense of the human condition of who we are, why we suffer, how we live, and what our end is. Indeed, it is the passage that makes most sense as we baptise Samuel this morning. 
For what we see here in Genesis 3, 1 to 7 is almost hilariously the step-by-step frustration of every single parent who has ever had to raise a child. And David and Emily already know this to be true in their short parenting lives. Genesis 3, 1 to 7 engages us deeply with the exasperation of a parent as you try to teach your child what is right and wrong, where you are staggered by how naughtiness seems to come so easily, how disobedience is perfected so swiftly, how temptation is given into so quickly and all too readily at such a young age, and to such an extent that you often reach the point where one of your favorite phrases as parents is, what on earth were you thinking? And that is very much the cry of this passage. Adam and Eve, what on earth were you thinking? And that brings us to, I think, the very main focus of this passage this morning. What were Adam and Eve thinking? Well, very simply, as we begin to walk through these few verses together, we see that they were caught up in the lies that this serpent offered against the truths of God. And Adam and Eve are thinking the thought encapsulated in the voice of the serpent in verse 5. Just read that. Chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows, says the serpent, that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Those five words are the most heartbreaking and the most persuasive six words in the whole of the English language. You will be like God. For that is the heart of sin and rebellion and suffering in the heart of every human. That is the heart of everything that is wrong in the world. We want to be like God. It's not good enough for us to want to belong to God as Adam and Eve did. That's what they were made to be, under his rule and blessing, trusting him that he had their best interests at heart. That's not enough. They actually want to unseat God, to be like him, to be him, to sit where he sits. And, argues Genesis 3, 1 to 7, along with every single book in the rest of the Bible, so do we. These verses describe our hearts, our desires, our thoughts, the rationale behind every temptation and sin we face regarding God. The fact that ultimately we want to be God. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to be in charge of our own parameters, of our own lives. We want to be in charge of the world. And we know that. We know sitting here that that's true. And it's true for Sammy, as unbelievably adorable as he is. He naturally doesn't and won't want to be told what to do. It's in his DNA. We know that. We know these verses are right as we look at how our hearts work. There is simply no other piece of literature that so describes exactly what we know to be true for us in our living and in our experience today. But how did we get there? How did we get here? How do Adam and Eve go from enjoying God's perfect creation in total abundance and joy and freedom, having total unfettered access to him, having no shame to having lost it all? in one conversation, to to wanting to unseat God. How was that drastic and desperate a fall possible? Well, these verses tell us that it was possible because of a series of remarkably well-constructed lies by this serpent character that Adam and Eve are convinced by. And that's what we're going to look at for the remainder of our time this morning, the three lies that the serpent gives that draws Adam and Eve into eventually wanting to unseat God himself. And as we do so, as one preacher put it, We not only step inside Eve's head, we also step inside our own heads as we see the same lies that we deal with every time that we give into temptation. And the first line we see is found in verse 1, as a serpent launches a full frontal assault on the very words of God themselves. That's the first point. The first lie is a lie that questions the goodness of God. 
Now, just to hit this on the head, the Bible is unapologetic about this scene. A talking serpent may seem weird to us, but in God's world in primeval history, it's not weird. The Bible is also unapologetic about explaining that this serpent, this slithery, crafty creature, as he's called, is Satan himself, God's spiritual but real adversary. Again, if you have a problem with that, come chat to me afterwards. It's a really important part of biblical literature. And in Revelation, we see very clearly, Revelation 12, 9, we read these words in the description of a final battle between Jesus and Satan. We read this, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. That is exactly what we see here in this passage. The ancient serpent present at Eden and what he is doing. And, and this is true. This is all real. This is a real spiritual reality in a real world. He is, he is Satan. He is deceiving. He's deceiving Eve. He goes on to deceive us today with the very same lies that we see here. The first one, which starts with a classic deceptive device of questioning the very words of God. Did God actually say? Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's what the serpent says. That the lies are full frontal assault on the very word of God. The, the serpent wants to sow seeds of doubt in Eve's mind that she may perhaps have got God's word wrong or, or that God wasn't clear in some way. Did God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? But, but as much as an assault goes, this is a pretty poor one, isn't it? It's actually a really bad lie. It, it's not a great con of the serpents because it's obviously so not true. That's weird about this first lie. All Adam and Eve have to eat in the garden on the whole of the planet is fruit. Obviously, God didn't say that we couldn't eat of any tree. It's a bad lie. And Eve responds as much. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve seems to have done really well under this full frontal attack of God's word. But she hasn't done well enough intriguingly. What did God actually say? Well, if you have your Bible, flip back to that verse in chapter 2 that Mary read for us, verse 16. What did God actually say? God actually said, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat. You've got that right. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eve got that right, but only partly. Yes, God said you would die, but there is nothing in God's law that says anything about touching the tree. Can you see Eve sort of added that little addendum to her response to the serpent? God said we couldn't touch it either or we'll die. No, he didn't. God didn't say that. So what's Eve doing? Well, I, I think Eve is doing here what we do, or what I do when we're faced with temptation. She's been weakened by the very question of the serpent. She's had the seed planted in her mind by the serpent that perhaps God isn't as generous or as kind as she thought he was. And so she, she tweaks God's word just enough to make God out to be that little bit more mean than he really is, that little bit more restrictive than he ever was, adding something new to the law that he hadn't added. And that's what we do. When we're faced with temptation, we, like Eve, stare temptation in the face. We stare the lie in the face. And, and we sort of go, oh, this is so hard. God is so tough on me. He's so restrictive. God said I shouldn't do this. It's all I can now think about. It's so hard. And, 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 and before long, I'm suddenly in a position where I sort of just have to grin and bear it. And then it gets exhausting. And, and then it gets worse. And God becomes more of a killjoy. And we give in, frankly, because all we can see is the lie. And, and all we can see is God in the negative. 
Um, we may add more negative things onto God. They get bigger and bigger in our heads. And yeah, actually, God is a bit of a bully. And yeah, actually, I deserve this. If he loved me, he'd give this to me. He'd let me have this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so on the snowball snowballs. The metaphorical tree gets bigger and bigger in our heads, and it's all we see. It doesn't want me to let go of myself a little bit when I deserve it. How dare God be like that? And then we snap, we give in. You see, Satan has managed to brilliantly turn Eve's focus to negative details that aren't even there in God's law. He's beginning to persuade her through a blatant howler of a lie that God is not as good as, as she first thought, not as generous as she first supposed. Let me highlight this in another way. Imagine what Eve should have responded to the serpent. She should have said, what? That's an insane thing to say. That's, that's absolutely mad. God didn't say that we couldn't eat of any tree in the garden. On the contrary, he said we could eat of every tree in the garden, bar one, every tree on the planet, in fact. In fact, there's too many trees to try. I haven't even tried them all yet. In fact, what I can't believe is that God is so generous he, he's given me a billion trees to choose from and a mere one that I can't. I don't even know where to start how, with how wrong you are and, and how good God is and how bothered I am about a single tree. It's God's. He can keep it. It's not my problem. That's his problem. He's given me a billion others. What are you talking about? You see? The lie of the serpent, the lie of Satan, traps us into thinking God is against us and rule-bearing and harsh when the reality is he's the opposite. And how often in temptation do we miss the opportunity to go, you know what, no, definitively no. God has given me so much good. He's, he's protected me in all these ways that he wants my best in so far. It's a no-brainer that I say no to this and I say yes to God. How hard we make life when we don't have the backdrop to God's goodness in our eye line more and more than we have God's right command to keep us safe for our own good. I remember being at a church welcome lunch down south long before I was married or I had kids, and in the main church hall, there was this huge table set up full of sweets and treats and sandwiches and goodies and snacks, all the kinds of foods that a child would die for. And on the table, there were also these brown bowls smattered amongst the goodies, and these brown bowls contained really hot chili crisps. And I remember, as if it were yesterday, one dad who was helping to set up the dinner turned to his five-year-old son, who had sort of been dragged along to help, and he was hungry, and the dad felt sorry for him, and he said, son, if you want a snack before everyone else arrives, just go ahead and feel free to get something from the table. Followed by the immortal words, but don't eat the food in the brown bowls. You'll not like them. They'll blow your head off. And the dad left, and I sat and watched. And I could hear the cogs in his little boy's brain whirring away like crazy. And after about two minutes of standing there, staring at this huge table with all of these treats, he slowly walks over. He reaches out his hand over a brown bowl, takes the biggest handful of chili crisps, and rams them into his mouth. And they blew his head off. <laughs> Cue total mayhem. Cue the perfect sermon illustration for such a time as this. Cue the sentence of the moment, what on earth were you thinking? He had every other foodstuff to choose from. But his father's generosity and freedom was not in his mind's eye. He was captured too much by the command and the warning. Like the serpent was with Eve, he was sold a lie from his heart that persuaded him that his dad's law was too restrictive and unfair. How could he possibly obey? You could see that going through over two minutes when all he had to do 
was look at the abundance of blessing that he was given on the table around him. All he had to do was deduce from that that his dad's abundance, that his dad's warning was probably for his benefit. The lie of the serpent, the lie of Satan, is that God is restrictive and unkind, measly and ungenerous. The lie of Satan is that God is not good. And as soon as we begin to flirt with that lie, like Eve does, we're, we're immediately weakened. The temptation becomes immediately sweeter, God's goodness, that otherwise would have dragged us out. It sort of fades into the background. But Satan, the serpent, hasn't finished with Eve yet. He's got more lies to spin. This brings us to our second lie, verse 4, the lie that now questions the truth of God. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Again, no more subtle than lie one on the face of it. It's a full frontal attack on God's word. God said you will die, or I'm telling you, you absolutely won't die. But it's actually much more insidious. This is now something that's much harder for Eve to check against. The, the woman only has God's word for it that she'll die if she were to eat of this tree. And that's what's at the heart of this lie. It is an attack on God's truth. Satan is calling God a liar. God is lying to you, says the serpent. In other words, he's not just a killjoy, lie one. He's messing around with you. He's, he's just frightening you into obedience. He's hiding the truth from you that you won't die. There won't be consequences to your actions. The truth is, of course, there are consequences, aren't there? Eternal, eternal Adam and, and everlasting Eve in the second half of this fall discourse, we're going to look at that next week, they're going to start to break apart, grow old, and they're eventually turned to dust. That was never part of God's perfection. It is part of our sinful world now. We know that that's our reality. One in one of us die. We're, we're embarrassed by that in the 21st century, but it's true. You can't do anything about it. Breaking God's commands comes with consequences. God wasn't lying. And this idea that we're free to live without consequences, I think it's a lie that we tell ourselves in the world today. We can get away with bad behavior. That we can break God's rules on marriage and friendship and kindness without consequences. That we can run roughshod over people and hurt them and promote ourselves and get away with it. We really do believe that, I think, in this day and age. It's ultimately the thing that pushes us over in our temptation, isn't it? That actually, ultimately, it just doesn't really matter. No one will know that there aren't any consequences. That little boy with the brown bowls of chili crisps, he had fully convinced himself that there were going to be no consequences to his actions, otherwise he wouldn't have done it. He had fully convinced himself that his dad was lying to him. The Bible is very clear that the wages of sin and rebellion against God is death. The Bible's very clear that without our coming to the creator God, wanting to know him personally, wanting to bear his image rightly and follow him in the way that he ordains us creator, that we're destined for an eternity without him. There are consequences to breaking his law. You see, Genesis 3, 1 to 7, it makes so much sense of life. It, it makes so much sense of the human condition. It, it makes so much sense of death. The truth is, of course, perversely, we don't want that to be our reality, the reality that we don't have consequences to our actions. On the contrary, we demand justice. We're not happy when people do bad things and get away with it. The uproar of Nurse Letby choosing not to face judgment in the dock was deafening in the country. The uproar of Jimmy Savile never seemingly having answered for his egregious crimes it was apoplectic, rightly so. We can't stand living in a world where people get away with things and there are no consequences. We can't bear that. Injustice makes us angry more than any other reality. 
Why? Because it's built into our DNA, because we're created by a God who demands consequences for our actions. It makes sense to us. We just convince ourselves in moments of temptation or pride or arrogance, the lie of the serpent, that I won't face any consequences, that what I do doesn't really matter, that God is lying. And that's a very dangerous place to be in when standing before the creator God. As Eve can testify to, and that brings us to our last lie, for Satan isn't done with deceiving the human race, he moves on to lie three, verse five, the lie that questions the protection of God. Verse five, Satan says, you'll surely not die, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what's going on here? This is what Satan's saying. God doesn't want you to know what he knows. That's what the serpent is saying, in effect. He's jealous. He's selfish. He's arrogant. He actually wants his godness to himself. He, He wants to hold all power and information and knowledge when, in fact, you could have all of that, Eve. In short, God wants to say what is good and evil in the world, not you. He wants to hold that right. God isn't protecting you, in other words. He's he's protectionist. He's he's protecting his power. He doesn't want it to be shared. He's scared of you. He, He doesn't want you to be like him. He alone wants to define what is good and bad. He doesn't want you to do that. And that is very much the heart of the human condition. We're back to where we started, right at the beginning of the talk. We want to be like God. And we know that we're like that. Because individually, most certainly in our society, we refuse to allow other people to define who we are in the terms by which we live. We are chronically independent. And no one can tell me what is good or bad. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my soul. I bow to no one. I answer to no one. I am under the authority of no one. No one can tell me what to do or be. I will decide what is good and bad. I will be king of my own life. I will be God. The last lie comes to the heart of the human condition. But the really interesting thing about this lie, this last one, is that Satan is pretty pretty much telling the truth, actually. You will have your eyes opened, woman, and you will know what God knows, and you will know good from evil. And she did, verse 7 of chapter 3, when she and Adam ate the fruit, their eyes were opened. Also, next week, chapter 3, verse 22, after the fall, after Adam and Eve are banished, we read these words, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has come like one of us in knowing good and evil. The serpent was right. In eating what they should not eat, Adam and Eve will have their eyes opened and will know what God knows. What is good and heartbreakingly what is bad. The lie comes in what Satan has failed to mention. And that was that created humanity couldn't deal with that knowledge. It didn't have true deity, true goodness, the inherent wisdom and power and authority to cope with it. And so it destroyed them. We would have the knowledge that God had of good and evil and we couldn't... And and we couldn't actually get to be God himself. It's the worst of both worlds. And and so knowledge of evil things humans could now do consumed the human race. When we get to the end of chapter 4 in a few weeks' time, we see in a relatively short period of time, within one generation, murder occurs. When only the generation previously, death wasn't even dreamed of. And then only a few generations after that, in chapter 6 of Genesis, we read the saddest verses in the whole of the Bible. Chapter 6, verse 5, we read these words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of man's hearts was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had ever made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. You see what's going on here? God wants to protect humanity. 
He knows we cannot bear the responsibility of choosing what is right and wrong. He knows that we cannot bear the responsibility of placing our own boundaries around us for our own protection. We always get it wrong. We don't have the moral compass. We don't have the power to withstand dealing with those choices, and we know we don't. The, the earth is littered with desperation and destruction because humanity will keep on making the wrong decisions at the wrong time, and it will keep on deluding itself to thinking that we're right and we can be God, and that we will get there in the end, that humanity can reach perfection at some point. And we can't. In William Golding's thesis on this very subject, The Lord of the Flies, you take a plane full of well-bred, morally upright public schoolboys and crash them on a desert island, and in a few days they are practically eating themselves. God alone holds the parameters of what is good and bad, what is right and wrong. And in warning us away from seeking that position, of seeking his platform that he alone inhabits, he's protecting us. Let me worry about that. Let me worry about what is right or wrong, says God. You enjoy me in creation. That is all you need to do. Trust me. And we weren't content. We wanted to know. We were desperately curious. Um, I'm reading The Magician's Nephew to Toby at the moment, in the evenings. The first book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And it's great. And there's a moment where C.S. Lewis reimagines the moment of the fall, where Diggory and Polly, the human children, have ended up in a dead world of darkness and sin. And right in the middle of this world is a courtyard. And in the center of this courtyard is a table. And on this table is a gold arch in which sits a small gold bell with a hammer lying underneath it. And beneath the hammer and the bell, there's a plaque which reads these words, Make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger, or wonder till it drives you mad what would have followed if you had. And at that moment, I closed the book and I said to Toby, what would you do? And he yelled, you've got to hit the bell. And I laughed and I said, no. I said, if you hit the bell, you're guaranteed to be met with frightful danger. Isn't it better not knowing, leaving the danger behind? He was like, no, 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 no. Why wouldn't you hit the bell? Why wouldn't you know? And I toyed with him for a while. I said, I think we should leave the chapter. I don't think we should read any more of this book. And he was like, ah. They sent him mad. It's not fair. They have to know. Why would no, why would no one hit that? And it's, a, it's an amusing story, but it's got a deep truth. It's tantalizing, isn't it? None of us would, would any of us really not hit that bell? Curiosity killed the cat. Curiosity enraged my son. Curiosity and the quest for higher knowledge, greater power, the seat next to, in the place of God, killed humanity. It's too hard to resist. Despite the open truth God has allowed us to be warned of in striking the bell, eating the fruit, making that decision, your eyes will be opened, but it'll be to the total destruction of yourself. It's in our very nature, from the age of Sammy, this morning all the way through to our latter years, to strike the bell, to eat the fruit, to, to know what we don't and shouldn't know, to be like God. These verses make more sense than any other moment in literature. And so after the last lie falls on the lips of the serpent, so the dread of verse 6 happens. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It's not that she's been forced to eat this. It's dripping with temptation. I love this. She took its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All is lost in a moment. Eve gives in, Adam gives in. We're going to look at Adam in a lot more detail next week. Note where he is. 
he is there. He's pretty much standing right next to his wife, allowing this tete-a-tete to continue. No help, no advice, no interruption, no pulling her away from danger. Willfully abandoning his position of leadership and protection, entirely complicit. The one on whom sin rests in the Bible, not Eve. And now shame has entered the world. Immediately there's division between man and woman. Up until now, had a perfect relationship. They need to hide themselves from each other. The automatic question here as we begin to draw to a close is, well, why on earth did God place that tree in the garden? Why tempt humanity with that very temptation? A tree that was effectively labelled be-like-God tree. That, that seems to be cruelly unfair. Well, the very simple answer to that is that God wanted humanity to know two things. Another way of putting it is there are two things God didn't want to hide from humanity. The first is that he always wanted humanity to know that he was in charge. And, and considering the world he had made in all, all its outrageous beauty and opulence, that he was a good God in charge. Look at me, he wants to tell you in creation. Look at what I've done for you. I, I hope you can see you can trust me. And, 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 and I want you to know that I made this all for you. But I also want you to know that I'm in charge, that I set the bounds of human existence, the bounds of your protection. Trust me, this tree is a sign that you can trust me. An obvious sign that I'm not ashamed of, which points to me being your God and you being my people. Trust me, I'm in charge. Leave the doing God bit to me. The second thing is that God wants his humanity to constantly choose him above everything else. He doesn't want us to robotically love him because that's the way we're built. A, a marriage or a friendship isn't a marriage or a friendship if you turn around to your spouse and your friend and go, do, do, do you love me, darling? And they say, well, of course I do. I can't do anything else. I'm programmed to love you. It's all I know. What a stupid question. That's not a relationship. That's slavery. In order for a relationship to work, the kind of relationship we've seen God building up between him and humankind in the last two chapters. He wants us to choose him every single day. He wants us to say no to something publicly and say yes to him above all things publicly. I don't want to shoehorn you into a relationship, says God. I want you to choose me, to, to trust me, to choose to love me. And I will go to outrageous lengths to prove my love for you. I will give you every single tree in the world to eat off. Nothing else is off limits. This one tree is mine for your protection. It's a sign of your trust in me. Choose me. Now, where do we finish? Because, boy, we could finish on a downer. I think we finish remarkably with relief and incredible hope. Relief for the fact that there is a reason for the world being the way it is. That there is a reason for the way we are and that the good creator God seems to be in control of it. You see, Genesis 3, 1 to 7 shows us exactly how we think, why we fall into temptation and sin. Because there is a script that Satan, the anti-God character in the world, has been using since day one. The accuser, the great deceiver, as we see in the New Testament. And he's been reading us that script every single day of our lives. In every single temptation we face, every single decision we have to choose, it's the same script. God is mean, you deserve better. God is lying, there are no consequences to your action. God is keeping things from you, you deserve to say what is right or wrong for you. Fight for yourself. Those three things could actually be slogans of our age, couldn't they? You deserve better. You do you. Don't let anyone get in your way. Your, your truth for you is what is best. If you believe in your heart, in yourself, it doesn't matter if things go wrong. Be unapologetically you. All those things are on our children's school walls. And all those things are the lies that we are fed every day. We fall for them every day, and that's where the relief comes in. When we battle and fight and fail in temptation as Christians, the relief is in knowing that it's not just me. 
that has been a script all of us have fallen for since Eve. It all makes sense. I'm not alone in this. For any of us here this morning, Christian or not, who look on the world and think, what on earth has happened? Why can't we seem to get this right? There's relief in knowing that there's a reason for this earth being the way it is. I'm not going mad. It, it all makes sense. We're, we're trying to be God, and that's disastrous. As my definition for goodness comes up against someone else's definition for goodness, which is nothing like mine. No wonder we don't get on. There's relief knowing that there's rhyme and reason behind the human condition. Uh, a good friend of mine who suffered with cancer said to me, the relief of knowing that there was something wrong and that we could now start to put things in place to fix it and help, it was enormous. As much as the news was heartbreaking, knowing what was wrong, understanding what I, I was actually feeling unwell, that there were symptoms, suddenly made sense of how I was feeling. I wasn't going mad. It meant I could also now turn to the cure, he said. And that's where we end this morning, the cure. And therein lies the hope. For the question is, why on earth do we need to know this? Why do we need to know Genesis 3, 1 to 7, the lies of Satan and our utter wretchedness? Because it's not the end of the story. The Bible could have finished there at chapter 3. God could have walked away quite legitimately and left us to our own devices, perhaps made another world who did love him, but he doesn't. For some reason, there are 66 more books of the Bible. There's a huge amount of the Bible to go. It's enormous. There's, there's 1,186 chapters still to go. For some reason, we're still here. For some reason, Adam and Eve didn't die straight away. For, for some reason, God allowed Adam and Eve to partially fulfill God's command to give them last week to continue filling the earth and subduing it and having dominion over it. For some reason, they still contain vestiges of his image. For some reason, we still see vestiges of beauty and life and excitement and joy and hope in our creation today. Why? Because God is not ready to abandon us as much as we were very ready to abandon him. Despite the fact that we do not love him, he has never stopped loving us. Despite the fact that Adam doomed the entirety of the human race by falling for the lie of Satan and thereby condemning his entire family line, including you and me, to perpetual sin and struggle and suffering, despite that, God allows humanity to continue in order for there to be a new family line. A new and better Adam who withstood the lies of Satan, who did not disobey his father, and who took the consequences of our action, of Adam and Eve's actions on himself, and paid the price, the price of death, even death on a cross. And that man was Jesus, God's son, who, though he was the image of God himself, did not account equality with God something to be grasped as much as we wanted equality with God. But he made himself nothing, in contrast to us trying to make ourselves God. He took the form of a servant, when we try to make ourselves God, being born in the likeness of men, and this Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Can you see how different our paths are? We want to be God, and God came down to man and died for us to pay for the consequences of our sin. God was not lying. There was a consequence to Eve's sin, to Adam's sin, to our sin, to Sammy's sin. And we all have to pay for that at some point. We, we have to die for eternity apart from God's goodness. The glorious reality is, however, that he, God himself, in Jesus, faced the consequences on our behalf. He was not content to lose the humanity he so loved. The question this morning is, are we going to be people who look at the Lord Jesus and ask him to take the consequences of our sin? That's literally what being a Christian means. 
That's what our prayer for Sammy is this morning, that he would do this, that we would come to Jesus in repentance and faith, saying sorry for our rebellion and lies, bow to him, accept him as king, place him on the throne of our hearts as the God that he is, and follow him for the rest of our days, thankful for his death in my place. And always making sure that we are won over to him every day, even when we fail, coming back to him by his goodness, by his truth, and by his eternal protection. Let me pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, God, thank you and praise you so much for the time that we've been able to spend together as a church family over these last few weeks looking at your perfect world. And Father, God, thank you, despite the heaviness of this passage, thank you for its incredible hope. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did something about our wretched situation. Thank you that Genesis 3, 1 to 7 really makes sense of the world that we live in. Thank you that it doesn't mean that we need to be fighting it, but, 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 but living it for it under the Lord Jesus and under his rule and blessing. Father God, I pray that we would be people who are engaged in fighting temptation, that we would always see the goodness of God in our eye line, we'd always have the truth of God in our eye line, that we'd always have the protection of God in our eye line, that we wouldn't want to be you, that we'd want to be us, made in your image, ready to live for you and to speak to others about the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ who saves us from this wretchedness and takes this consequence of death for us and allows us to live forever with him, with you in eternity. Father God, we praise you for these wonderful truths. May they warm our hearts this morning, we pray as we leave. In your mighty name, amen.